experiment can affect more than a specified number of customers, usually expressed as a percentage of the company's total mainstream customer base. 5. Every experiment has to be evaluated on the basis of a single standard report of 5 to 10, no more, actionable metrics. 6. Every team that works inside the sandbox and every product that is built must use the same metrics to evaluate success. 7. Any team that creates an experiment must monitor the metrics and customer reactions, support calls, social media reaction, forum threads, etc., while the experiment is in progress and aborted if something catastrophic happens. At the beginning, the sandbox has to be quite small. In the company above, the sandbox initially contained only the pricing page. Depending on the types of products the company makes, the size of the sandbox can be defined in different ways. For example, an online service might restrict it to certain pages or user flows. A retail operation might restrict it to certain stores or geographic areas. Companies trying to bring an entirely new product to market might build the restriction around customers in certain segments. Unlike in a concept test or market test, customers in the sandbox are considered real and the innovation team is allowed to attempt to establish a long-term relationship with them. After all, they may be experimenting with those early adopters for a long time before their learning milestones are accomplished. Whenever possible, the innovation team should be cross-functional and have a clear team leader, like the Toyota Shusa. It should be empowered to build, market, and deploy products or features in the sandbox without prior approval. It should be required to report on the success or failure of those efforts by using standard actionable metrics and innovation accounting. This approach can work even for teams that have never before worked cross-functionally. The first few changes, such as a price change, may not require great engineering effort, but they require coordination across departments, engineering, marketing, customer service. Teams that work this way are more productive as long as productivity is measured by their ability to create customer value and not just stay busy. True experiments are easy to classify as successes or failures because top-level metrics either move or they don't. Either way, the team learns immediately whether its assumptions about how customers will behave are correct. By using the same metrics each time, the team builds literacy about those metrics across the company. Because the innovation team is reporting on its progress by using the system of innovation accounting described in part 2, anyone who reads those reports is getting an implicit lesson in the power of actionable metrics. This effect is extremely powerful. Even if someone wants to sabotage the innovation team, he or she will have to learn all about actionable metrics and learning milestones to do it. The sandbox also promotes rapid iteration. When people have a chance to see a project through from end to end and the work is done in small batches and delivers a clear verdict quickly, they benefit from the power of feedback. Each time they fail to move the numbers, they have a real opportunity to act on their findings immediately. Thus, these teams tend to converge on optimal solutions rapidly even if they start out with really bad ideas. As we saw earlier, this is a manifestation of the principle of small batches. Functional specialists, especially those steeped in waterfall or stagegate development, have been trained to work in extremely large batches. This causes even good ideas to get bogged down by waste. By making the batch size small, the sandbox method allows teams to make cheap mistakes quickly and start learning. As we'll see below. These small initial experiments can demonstrate that a team has a viable new business that can be integrated back into the parent company. Holding internal teams accountable. We already discussed learning milestones in detail in Chapter 7. With an internal startup team, the sequence of accountability is the same, build an ideal model of the desired disruption that is based on customer archetypes, launch a minimum viable product to establish a baseline and then attempt to tune the engine to get it closer to the ideal. Operating in this framework, internal teams essentially act as startups. As they demonstrate success, they need to become integrated into the company's overall portfolio of products and services. 
cultivating the management portfolio. There are four major kinds of work that companies must manage. As an internal startup grows, the entrepreneurs who created the original concept must tackle the challenge of scale. As new mainstream customers are acquired and new markets are conquered, the product becomes part of the public face of the company, with important implications for PR, marketing, sales, and business development. In most cases, the product will attract competitors, copycats, fast followers, and imitators of all stripes. Once the market for the new product is well established, procedures become more routine. To combat the inevitable commoditization of the product in its market, line extensions, incremental upgrades, and new forms of marketing are essential. In this phase, operational excellence takes on a greater role, as an important way to increase margins is to lower costs. This may require a different type of manager, one who excels in optimization. Delegation, control, and execution. Company stock prices depend on this kind of predictable growth. There is a fourth phase as well, one dominated by operating costs and legacy products. This is the domain of outsourcing, automation, and cost reduction. Nonetheless, infrastructure is still mission critical. Failure of facilities or important infrastructure or the abandonment of loyal customers could derail the whole company. However, unlike the growth and optimization phase, investments in this area will not help the company achieve top-line growth. Managers of this kind of organization suffer the fate of baseball umpires, criticized when something goes wrong, unappreciated when things are going well. We tend to speak of these four phases of businesses from the perspective of large companies, in which they may represent entire divisions and hundreds or even thousands of people. That's logical, as the evolution of the business in these kinds of extreme cases is the easiest to observe. However, all companies engage in all four phases of work all the time. As soon as a product hits the marketplace, teams of people work hard to advance it to the next phase. Every successful product or feature began life in research and development, R&D eventually became a part of the company's strategy, was subject to optimization, and in time became old news. The problem for startups and large companies alike is that employees often follow the products they develop as they move from phase to phase. A common practice is for the inventor of a new product or feature to manage the subsequent resources, team, or division that ultimately commercializes it. As a result, Strong creative managers wind up getting stuck working on the growth and optimization of products rather than creating new ones. This tendency is one of the reasons established companies struggle to find creative managers to foster innovation in the first place. Every new innovation competes for resources with established projects, and one of the scarcest resources is talent. Entrepreneur is a job title. The way out of this dilemma is to manage the four kinds of work differently, allowing strong cross-functional teams to develop around each area. When products move from phase to phase, they are handed off between teams. Employees can choose to move with the product as part of the handoff or stay behind and begin work on something new. Neither choice is necessarily right or wrong, it depends on the temperament and skills of the person in question. Some people are natural inventors who prefer to work without the pressure and expectations of the later business phases. Others are ambitious and see innovation as a path towards senior management. Still others are particularly skilled at the management of running an established business, outsourcing, and bolstering efficiencies and wringing out cost reductions. People should be allowed to find the kinds of jobs that suit them best. In fact, entrepreneurship should be considered a viable career path for innovators inside large organizations, managers who can lead teams by using the lean startup methodology should not have to leave the company to reap the rewards of their skills or have to pretend to fit into the rigid hierarchies of established functional departments. Instead, they should have a business card that says simply entrepreneur under the name. They should be held accountable via the system of innovation accounting and promoted and rewarded accordingly.
After an entrepreneur has incubated a product in the innovation sandbox, it has to be reintegrated into the parent organization. A larger team eventually will be needed to grow it, commercialize it, and scale it. At first, this team will require the continued leadership of the innovators who worked in the sandbox. In fact, this is a positive part of the process in that it gives the innovators a chance to train new team members in the new style of working that they mastered in the original sandbox. Ideally, the sandbox will grow over time, that is, rather than move the team out of the sandbox and into the company's standard routines, there may be opportunities to enlarge the scope of the sandbox. For example, if only certain aspects of the product were subject to experimentation in the sandbox, new features can be added. In the online service described earlier, this could be accomplished by starting with a sandbox that encompassed the product pricing page. When those experiments succeeded, the company could add the website's homepage to the sandbox. It subsequently might add the search functionality or the overall web design. If only certain customers or certain numbers of customers were targeted initially, the product's reach could be increased. When such changes are contemplated, it's important that senior management consider whether the teams working in the sandbox can fend for themselves politically in the parent organization. The sandbox was designed to protect them and the parent organization, and any expansion needs to take this into account. Working in the innovation sandbox is like developing startup muscles. At first, the team will be able to take on only modest experiments. The earliest experiments may fail to produce much learning and may not lead to scalable success. Over time, those teams are almost guaranteed to improve as long as they get the constant feedback of small batch development and actionable metrics and are held accountable to learning milestones. Of course, any innovation system eventually will become the victim of its own success. As the sandbox expands and the company's revenue grows as a result of the sandbox's innovations, the cycle will have to begin again. The former innovators will become guardians of the status quo. When the product makes up the whole sandbox, it inevitably will become encumbered with the additional rules and controls needed for mission-critical operation. New innovation teams will need a new sandbox within which to play. Becoming the status quo. This last transition is especially hard for innovators to accept, their transformation from radical outsiders to the embodiment of the status quo. I have found it disturbing in my career. As you can guess from the techniques I advocate as part of the Lean Startup, I have always been a bit of a troublemaker at the companies at which I have worked, pushing for rapid iteration, data-driven decision-making, and early customer involvement. When these ideas were not part of the dominant culture, it was simple, if frustrating, to be an advocate. All I had to do was push as hard as humanly possible for my ideas. Since the dominant culture found them heretical, they would compromise with me a reasonable amount. Thanks to the psychological phenomenon of anchoring, this led to a perverse incentive, the more radical my suggestion was, the more likely it was that the reasonable compromise would be closer to my true goal. Fast forward several years to when I was running product development. When we'd hire new people, they had to be indoctrinated into the lean startup culture. Split testing, continuous deployment, and customer testing were all standard practice. I needed to continue to be a strong advocate for my ideas, making sure each new employee was ready to give them a try. But for the people who had been working there a while, those ideas had become part of the status quo. Like many entrepreneurs, I was caught between constant evangelizing for my ideas and constantly entertaining suggestions for ways they could be improved. My employees faced the same incentive I had exploited years before, the more radical the suggestion is, the more likely it is that the compromise will move in the direction they desire. I heard it all, suggestions that we go back to waterfall development, use more quality assurance, QA, use less QA, have more or less customer involvement, use more vision and less data, or interpret data in a more statistically rigorous way. It took a constant effort to consider these suggestions seriously. However, responding dogmatically is unhelpful. 
compromising by automatically splitting the difference doesn't work either. I've found that every suggestion should be subjected to the same rigorous scientific inquiry that led to the creation of the lean startup in the first place. Can we use the theory to predict the results of the proposed change? Can we incubate the change in a small team and see what happens? Can we measure its impact? Whenever they could be implemented, these approaches have allowed me to increase my own learning and, more important, the productivity of the companies I have worked with. Many of the lean startup techniques that we pioneered at IMVU are not my original contributions. Rather, they were conceived, incubated, and executed by employees who brought their own creativity and talent to the task. Above all, I faced this common question, how do we know that your way of building a company will work? What other companies are using it? Who has become rich and famous as a result? These questions are sensible. The titans of our industry are all working in a slower, more linear way. Why are we doing something different? It is these questions that require the use of theory to answer. Those who look to adopt the lean startup as a defined set of steps or tactics will not succeed. I had to learn this the hard way. In a startup situation, things constantly go wrong. When that happens, we face the age-old dilemma summarized by Deming, how do we know that the problem is due to a special cause versus a systemic cause? If we're in the middle of adopting a new way of working, the temptation will always be to blame the new system for the problems that arise. Sometimes that tendency is correct, sometimes not. Learning to tell the difference requires theory. You have to be able to predict the outcome of the changes you make to tell if the problems that result are really problems. For example, changing the definition of productivity for a team from functional excellence excellence in marketing, sales, or product development to validated learning will cause problems. As was indicated earlier, functional specialists are accustomed to measuring their efficiency by looking at the proportion of time they are busy doing their work. A programmer expects to be coding all day long, for example. That is why many traditional work environments frustrate these experts, the constant interruption of meetings, cross-functional handoffs, and explanations for endless numbers of bosses all act as a drag on efficiency. However, the individual efficiency of these specialists is not the goal in a lean startup. Instead, we want to force teams to work cross-functionally to achieve validated learning. Many of the techniques for doing this actionable metrics, continuous deployment, and the overall build-measure-learn feedback loop necessarily cause teams to sub-optimize for their individual functions. It does not matter how fast we can build. It does not matter how fast we can measure. What matters is how fast we can get through the entire loop. In my years teaching this system, I have noticed this pattern every time, switching to validated learning feels worse before it feels better. That's the case because the problems caused by the old system tend to be intangible, whereas the problems of the new system are all too tangible. Having the benefit of theory is the antidote to these challenges. If it is known that this loss of productivity is an inevitable part of the transition, it can be managed actively. Expectations can be set up front. In my consulting practice, for example, I have learned to raise these issues from day one, otherwise, they are liable to derail the whole effort once it is underway. As the change progresses, we can use the root cause analysis and fast response techniques to figure out which problems need prevention. Ultimately, the lean startup is a framework, not a blueprint of steps to follow. It is designed to be adapted to the conditions of each specific company. Rather than copy what others have done, Techniques such as the five whys allow you to build something that is perfectly suited to your company. The best way to achieve mastery of and explore these ideas is to embed oneself in a community of practice. There is a thriving community of lean startup meetups around the world as well as online, and suggestions for how. You can take advantage of these resources listed in the last chapter of this. Book, Join the Movement. 13. Epilogue, Waste Not. 
This year marks the 100th anniversary of Frederick Winslow. Taylor's The Principles of Scientific Management, first published in 1911. The movement for scientific management changed the course of the 20th century by making possible the tremendous prosperity that we take for granted today. Taylor effectively invented what we now consider simply management, improving the efficiency of individual workers, management by exception, focusing only on unexpectedly good or bad results, standardizing work into tasks, the task plus bonus system of compensation, and above all, the idea that work can be studied and improved through conscious effort. Taylor invented modern white-collar work that sees companies as systems that must be managed at more than the level of the individual. There is a reason all past management revolutions have been led by engineers, management is human systems engineering. In 1911 Taylor wrote, in the past, the man has been first, in the future, the system must be first. Taylor's prediction has come to pass. We are living in the world he imagined. And yet, the revolution that he unleashed has been in many ways too successful. Whereas Taylor preached science as a way of thinking, many people confused his message with the rigid techniques he advocated, time and motion studies, the differential piece rate system, and most galling of all, the idea that workers should be treated as little more than automatons. Many of these ideas proved extremely harmful and required the efforts of later theorists and managers to undo. Critically, lean manufacturing rediscovered the wisdom and initiative hidden in every factory worker and redirected Taylor's notion of efficiency away from the individual task and toward the corporate organism as a whole. But each of these subsequent revolutions has embraced Taylor's core idea that work can be studied scientifically and can be improved through a rigorous experimental approach. In the 21st century, we face a new set of problems that Taylor could not have imagined. Our productive capacity greatly exceeds our ability to know what to build. Although there was a tremendous amount of invention and innovation in the early 20th century, most of it was devoted to increasing the productivity of workers and machines in order to feed, clothe, and house the world's population. Although that project is still incomplete, as the millions who live in poverty can attest, the solution to that problem is now strictly a political one. We have the capacity to build almost anything we can imagine. The big question of our time is not can it be built? But should it be built? This places us in an unusual historical moment, our future prosperity depends on the quality of our collective imaginations. In 1911, Taylor wrote. We can see our forests vanishing, our water powers going to waste, our soil being carried by floods into the sea, and the end of our coal and our iron is in sight. But our larger wastes of human effort, which go on every day through such of our acts as are blundering, ill-directed, or inefficient, are less visible, less tangible, and are but vaguely appreciated. We can see and feel the waste of material things. Awkward, inefficient, or ill-directed movements of men, however, leave nothing visible or tangible behind them. Their appreciation calls for an act of memory, an effort of the imagination. And for this reason, even though our daily loss from this source is greater than from our waste of material things, the one has stirred us deeply, while the other has moved us but little. 1. A century on, what can we say about those words? On the one hand, they feel archaic. We of the 21st century are hyper-aware of the importance of efficiency and the economic value of productivity gains. Our workplaces are, at least when it comes to the building of material objects, incredibly well-organized compared with those of Taylor's day. On the other hand, Taylor's words strike me as completely contemporary. For all of our vaunted efficiency in the making of things, our economy is still incredibly wasteful. This waste comes not from the inefficient organization of work but rather from working on the wrong things and on an industrial scale. As Peter Drucker said, there is surely nothing quite so useless as doing with great efficiency what should not be done at all. And yet we are doing the wrong things efficiently all the time. It is hard to come by a solid estimate of just how wasteful modern work is, but there is no shortage of anecdotes. 
in my consulting and travels talking about the lean. Startup, I hear the same message consistently from employees of companies. Big and small. In every industry we see endless stories of failed launches, ill-conceived projects, and large-batch death spirals. I consider this misuse of people's time a criminally negligent waste of human creativity and potential. What percentage of all this waste is preventable? I think a much larger proportion than we currently realize. Most people I meet believe that in their industry at least, projects fail for good reasons, projects are inherently risky, market conditions are unpredictable, big company people are intrinsically uncreative. Some believe that if we just slowed everything down and used a more careful process, we could reduce the failure rate by doing fewer projects of higher quality. Others believe that certain people have an innate gift of knowing the right thing to build. If we can find enough of these visionaries and virtuosos, our problems will be solved. These solutions were once considered. State of the art in the 19th century, too, before people knew about. Modern management. The requirements of an ever faster world make these antique approaches unworkable, and so the blame for failed projects and businesses often is heaped on senior management, which is asked to do the impossible. Alternatively, the finger of blame is pointed at financial investors or the public markets for overemphasizing quick fixes and short term results. We have plenty of blame to go around, but far too little theory to guide the actions of leaders and investors alike. The lean startup movement stands in contrast to this hand-wringing. We believe that most forms of waste in innovation are preventable once their causes are understood. All that is required is that we change our collective mindset concerning how this work is to be done. It is insufficient to exhort workers to try harder. Our current problems are caused by trying too hard at the wrong things. By focusing on functional, Efficiency, we lose sight of the real goal of innovation, to learn that which is currently unknown. As Deming taught, what matters is not setting quantitative goals but fixing the method by which those goals are attained. The lean startup movement stands for the principle that the scientific method can be brought to bear to answer the most pressing innovation question, how can we build a sustainable organization around a new set of products or services? Organizational superpowers. A participant at one of my workshops came up to me a few months afterward to relate the following story, which I am paraphrasing Knowing lean startup principles makes me feel like I have superpowers. Even though I'm just a junior employee, when I meet with corporate VPs and GMs in my large company, I ask them simple questions and very quickly help them see how their projects are based on fundamental hypotheses that are testable. In minutes, I can lay out a plan they could follow to scientifically validate their plans before it's too late. They consistently respond with wow, you are brilliant. We've never thought to apply that level of rigor to our thinking about new products before. As a result of these interactions, he has developed a reputation within his large company as a brilliant employee. This has been good for his career but very frustrating for him personally. Why? Because although he is quite brilliant, his insights into flawed product plans are due not to his special intelligence but to having a theory that allows him to predict what will happen and propose alternatives. He is frustrated because the managers he is pitching his ideas to do not see the system. They wrongly conclude that the key to success is finding brilliant people like him to put on their teams. They are failing to see the opportunity he is really presenting them to achieve better results systematically by changing their beliefs about how innovation happens. Putting the system first, some dangers. Like Taylor before us, our challenge is to persuade the managers of modern corporations to put the system first. However, Taylorism should act as a cautionary tale, and it is important to learn the lessons of history as we bring these new ideas to a more mainstream audience. Taylor is remembered for his focus on systematic practice rather than individual brilliance. Here is the full quote from the principles of scientific management that includes the famous line about putting the system first. In the future it will be appreciated that our leaders must be trained right as well as born right, and that no great man can, with the old system of 
Personal management, hope to compete with a number of ordinary men who have been properly organized so as efficiently to cooperate. In the past the man has been first, in the future the system must be first. This in no sense, however, implies that great men are not needed. On the contrary, the first object of any good system must be that of developing first-class men, and under systematic management the best man rises to the top more certainly and more rapidly than ever before. 3. Unfortunately, Taylor's insistence that scientific management does not stand in opposition to finding and promoting the best individuals was quickly forgotten. In fact, the productivity gains to be had through the early scientific management tactics, such as time and motion study, task plus bonus, and especially functional foremanship, the forerunner of today's functional departments, were so significant that subsequent generations of managers lost sight of the importance of the people who were implementing them. This has led to two problems, one, business systems became overly rigid and thereby failed to take advantage of the adaptability, creativity, and wisdom of individual workers, and, two, there has been an overemphasis on planning, prevention, and procedure, which enable organizations to achieve consistent results in a mostly static world. On the factory floor, these problems have been tackled head-on by the lean manufacturing movement, and those lessons have spread throughout many modern corporations. And yet in new product development, entrepreneurship, and innovation work in general we are still using an outdated framework. My hope is that the lean startup movement will not fall into the same reductionist trap. We are just beginning to uncover the rules that govern entrepreneurship, a method that can improve the odds of startup success, and a systematic approach to building new and innovative products. This in no way diminishes the traditional entrepreneurial virtues, the primacy of vision, the willingness to take bold risks, and the courage required in the face of overwhelming odds. Our society needs the creativity and vision of entrepreneurs more than ever. In fact, it is precisely because these are such precious resources that we cannot afford to waste them. Product Development Pseudoscience I believe that if Taylor were alive today, he would chuckle at what constitutes the management of entrepreneurs and innovators. Although we harness the labor of scientists and engineers who would have dazzled any early 20th century person with their feats of technical wizardry, the management practices we use to organize them are generally devoid of scientific rigor. In fact, I would go so far as to call them pseudoscience. We routinely greenlight new projects more on the basis of intuition than facts. As we've seen throughout this book, that is not the root cause of the problem. All innovation begins with vision. It's what happens next that is critical. As we've seen, too many innovation teams engage in success theatre, selectively finding data that support their vision rather than exposing the elements of the vision to true experiments, or, even worse, staying in stealth mode to create a data-free zone for unlimited experimentation that is devoid of customer feedback or external accountability of any kind. Anytime a team attempts to demonstrate cause and effect by placing highlights on a graph of gross metrics, it is engaging in pseudoscience. How do we know that the proposed cause and effect is true? Anytime a team attempts to justify its failures by resorting to learning as an excuse, it is engaged in pseudoscience as well. If learning has taken place in one iteration cycle, let us demonstrate it by turning it into validated learning in the next cycle. Only by building a model of customer behavior and then showing our ability to use our product or service to change it over time can we establish real facts about the validity of our vision. Throughout our celebration of the success of the lean startup movement, a note of caution is essential. We cannot afford to have our success breed a new pseudoscience around pivots, MVPs, and the like. This was the fate of scientific management, and in the end, I believe, that set back its cause by decades. Science came to stand for the victory of routine work over creative work. Mechanization over humanity and plans over agility. Later movements had to be spawned to correct those deficiencies. Taylor believed in many things that he dubbed scientific but that our modern eyes perceive as mere prejudice. 
He believed in the inherent superiority in both intelligence and character of aristocratic men over the working classes. And the superiority of men over women, he also thought that lower status people should be supervised strictly by their betters. These beliefs are part and parcel of Taylor's time, and it is tempting to forgive him for having been blind to them. Yet when our time is viewed through the lens of future practice, what prejudices will be revealed? In what forces do we place undue faith? What might we risk losing sight of with this initial success of our movement? It is with these questions that I wish to close. As gratifying as it is for me to see the lean startup movement gain fame and recognition, it is far more important that we be right in our prescriptions. What is known so far is just the tip of the iceberg. What is needed is a massive project to discover how to unlock the vast stores of potential that are hidden in plain sight in our modern workforce. If we stopped wasting people's time, what would they do with it? We have no real concept of what is possible. Starting in the late 1880s, Taylor began a program of experimentation to discover the optimal way to cut steel. In the course of that research, which lasted more than 25 years, he and his colleagues performed more than 20,000 individual experiments. What is remarkable about this project is that it had no academic backing, no government R&D budget. Its entire cost was paid by industry out of the immediate profits generated from the higher productivity the experiments enabled. This was only one experimental program to uncover the hidden productivity in just one kind of work. Other scientific management disciples spent years investigating bricklaying, farming, and even shoveling. They were obsessed with learning the truth and were not satisfied with the folk wisdom of craftspersons or the parables of experts. Can any of us imagine a modern knowledge work manager with the same level of interest in the methods his or her employees use? How much of our current innovation work is guided by catchphrases that lack a scientific foundation? A new research program. What comparable research programs could we be engaged in to discover how to work more effectively? For one thing, we have very little understanding of what stimulates productivity under conditions of extreme uncertainty. Luckily, with cycle times falling everywhere, we have many opportunities to test new approaches. Thus, I propose that we create startup testing labs that could put all manner of product development methodologies to the test. How might those tests be conducted? We could bring in small cross-functional teams, perhaps beginning with product and engineering and have them work to solve problems by using different development methodologies. We could begin with problems with clear right answers, perhaps drawn from the many international programming competitions that have developed databases of well-defined problems with clear solutions. These competitions also provide a clear baseline of how long it should take for various problems to be solved so that we could establish clearly the individual problem-solving prowess of the experimental subjects. Using this kind of setup for calibration, we could begin to vary the conditions of the experiments. The challenge will be to increase the level of uncertainty about what the right answer is while still being able to measure the quality of the outcome objectively. Perhaps we could use real-world customer problems and then have real consumers test the output of the team's work. Or perhaps we could go so far as to build minimum viable products for solving the same set of problems over and over again to quantify which produces the best customer conversion rates. We also could vary the all-important cycle time by choosing more or less complex development platforms and distribution channels to test the impact of those factors on the true productivity of the teams. Most of all, we need to develop clear methods for holding teams accountable for validated learning. I have proposed one method in this book, innovation accounting using a well-defined financial model and engine of growth. However, it is naive to assume that this is the best possible method. As it is adopted in more and more companies, undoubtedly new techniques will be suggested, and we need to be able to evaluate the new ideas as rigorously as possible. All these questions raise the possibilities of public-private partnerships between research universities and the entrepreneurial communities they seek to foster.
It also suggests that universities may be able to add value in more ways than by being simply financial investors or creators of startup incubators. As is the current trend. My prediction is that wherever this research is conducted will become an epicenter of new entrepreneurial practice, and universities conducting this research therefore may be able to achieve a much higher level of commercialization of their basic research activities. The Long-Term Stock Exchange Beyond simple research, I believe our goal should be to change the entire ecosystem of entrepreneurship. Too much of our startup industry has devolved into a feeder system for giant media companies and investment banks. Part of the reason established companies struggle to invest consistently in innovation is intense pressure from public markets to hit short-term profitability and growth targets. Mostly, this is a consequence of the accounting methods we have developed for evaluating managers, which focus on the kinds of gross vanity metrics discussed in Chapter 7. What is needed is a new kind of stock exchange, designed to trade in the stocks of companies that are organized to sustain long-term thinking. I propose that we create a long-term stock exchange, LTSE. In addition to quarterly reports on profits and margins, companies on the LTSE would report using innovation accounting on their internal. Entrepreneurship efforts. Like Intuit, they would report on the revenue they were generating from products that did not exist a few years earlier. Executive compensation in LTSE companies would be tied to the company's long-term performance. Trading on the LTSE would have much higher transaction costs and fees to minimize day trading and massive price swings. In exchange, LTSE companies would be allowed to structure their corporate governance to facilitate greater freedom for management to pursue long-term investments. In addition to support for long-term thinking, the transparency of the LTSE will provide valuable data about how to nurture innovation in the real world. Something like the LTSE would accelerate the creation of the next generation of great companies, built from the ground up for continuous innovation. In conclusion. As a movement, the lean startup must avoid doctrines and rigid ideology. We must avoid the caricature that science means formula or a lack of humanity in work. In fact, science is one of humanity's most creative pursuits. I believe that applying it to entrepreneurship will unlock a vast storehouse of human potential. What would an organization look like if all of its employees were armed with lean startup organizational superpowers? For one thing, everyone would insist that assumptions be stated explicitly and tested rigorously not as a stalling tactic or a form of make-work but out of a genuine desire to discover the truth that underlies every project's vision. We would not waste time on endless arguments between the defenders of quality and the cowboys of reckless advance, instead, we would recognize that speed and quality are allies in the pursuit of the customer's long-term benefit. We would race to test our vision but not to abandon it. We would look to Eliminate waste not to build quality castles in the sky but in the service of agility And break through business results We would respond to failures and setbacks with honesty and learning, not with recriminations and blame More than that, we would shun the impulse to slow down, increase batch size, and indulge in the curse of prevention Instead, we would achieve speed by bypassing the excess work that does not lead to learning. We would dedicate ourselves to the creation of new institutions with a long-term mission to build sustainable value and change the world for the better. Most of all, we would stop wasting people's time. Acknowledgements I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to the many people who have helped make the Lean Startup a reality. First and foremost are the thousands of entrepreneurs around the world who have tested these ideas, challenged them, refined them, and improved them. Without their relentless, and mostly unheralded, work every day, none of this would be possible. Thank you. Real startups involve failure, embarrassing mistakes, and constant chaos. In my research for this book, I discovered that most entrepreneurs and managers would prefer not to have the real story of their daily work told in public. Therefore, I am indebted to the courageous entrepreneurs who consented to have their stories told, many of whom spent hours in tedious interviews and fact-checking conversations. Thank you.
I have been grateful throughout my career to have mentors and collaborators who have pushed me to accomplish more than I could have on my own. Will Harvey is responsible for both recruiting me to Silicon Valley in the first place and for trusting me with the opportunity to try out many of these ideas for the first time at IMVU. I am grateful to my other IMVU co-founders Marcus Gosling, Matt Danzig, and Mel Guyman as well as the many IMVU employees who did so much of the work I discussed. Of course, none of that would have been possible without the support of millions of IMVU customers over the years. I'd also like to thank David Millstone, Ken Duda, Fernando Poise, Steve Weinstein, Owen Mahoney, Rayo Campo, and Jason Altieri for their help along the way. We all owe Steve Blank a debt for the work he did developing the theory of customer development at a time when it was considered heretical in startup and VC circles. As I mentioned in the introduction, Steve was an early investor in an advisor to IMVU. For the past seven years, he has been an advisor, mentor, and collaborator to me personally. I want to thank him for his encouragement, support, and friendship. The lean startup movement is made up of many more thinkers, practitioners, and writers than just me. I want to thank Dave McLeor, Ash Moyer, Brant Cooper, Patrick Vlaskovitz, Sean Ellis, Andrew Chen, Sean Murphy, Trevor Owens, Hyten Shah, and Kent Beck for their ideas, support, and evangelism. Several investors and venture capitalists were early supporters and adopters. I would like to thank Mike Maples and Anmi Urikeo, Floodgate, Steve Anderson, Baseline, Josh Kopelman, First Round Capital, Ron Conway, SB Angel, and Jeff Clavier, Soft Tech VC. As you can imagine, this book involved a tremendous amount of feedback, iteration, and testing. I received invaluable, in-depth early feedback from Laura Cresciamano. Lee Hoffman, Professor Tom Eisenman, and Sasha Judd. Thanks also to Mitch Caper, Scott Cook, Sean Fanning, Mark Graben, Jennifer Carolyn, Manuel Rosso, Tim O'Reilly, and Reed Hoffman for their suggestions, feedback, and support. I owe a special note of thanks to Ruth Kaplan and IOA Fay for their wisdom and friendship. Throughout the process of writing the book, I had the benefit of a custom-built testing platform to run split-test experiments on everything from cover design to subtitles to actual bits of the book, you can see the results of these experiments at lean.st. Pivotal Labs built this software for me, they are the premier practitioners of agile development. Special thanks to Rob Me, Ian McFarland, and most important, Parker Thompson, who work tirelessly to build, experiment, and learn with me. Thanks also to IMVU co-founder Marcus Gosling, one of the most talented designers I know, who designed this book's cover, after countless iterations. One of the premier web and user experience design firms, Digital Telepathy, designed and built the website for http startupcom Using their unique iterative performance design process. It's awesome. Learn more at http colon double forward slash www.dtelepathy.com http colon double forward slash www.dtelepathy.com I was extremely fortunate to have the support of three legendary institutions at various points in my journey. Much of the research that went into this book was generously underwritten by the Kaufman Foundation. At Kaufman, I want to especially thank both Fishback and Nick Seguin for their support. I spent the past year as an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School, where I enjoyed the opportunity to test my ideas against some of the brightest minds in business. I am especially grateful to Professors Tom Eisenman and Mike Roberts for their sponsorship and support, as well as to the students of the HBS Startup Tribe. I also had the opportunity to spend a brief time with an office at the premier venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Bias, where I received an in-depth education into how entrepreneurship is nurtured at the highest levels. Thanks to Kaihua Chien, Randy Commissar, Matt Murphy, Bing Gordon, Eileen Lee, and Ellen Powell, and to my office mate and EIR, Syriac Roding. My research team helped me document case studies, 
interview hundreds of startups, and filter thousands of stories. I want to thank Marissa Porzig, who logged countless hours documenting, cross-referencing, and investigating. Additional case studies were developed by Sarah Gavisa Leslie and Sarah Milstein. Traditional publishing is a complicated and insular business. I benefited from advice and connections from many people. Tim Ferriss and Ramit Sethi set me straight early on. I am also grateful to Peter Sims, Paul Michelman, Mary Tressler, Joshua Michelle Ross, Clara Shee, Sarah Milstein, Adam Penenberg, Gretchen Rubin, Kate Lee, Hollis Heimbauch, Bob Sutton, Frankie Jones, Randy Commissar, and Jeff Rosenthal. At Crown, the Herculean task of turning this idea into the book you are reading fell to a huge team of people. My editor, Roger Scholl, saw the vision of this book from the very beginning and shepherded it through the entire process. I want to also thank Tina Constable, Tara Gilbride, and Meredith McGuinness and everyone else who worked on making this book a reality. Those who had the misfortune of reading an early draft know just how much gratitude I owe to Loreen Rowland, who provided essential editorial help on an unbelievably tight schedule. If you enjoyed any part of this book, she deserves your thanks. My advisor, partner, and consiglia throughout the publishing process has been my phenomenal agent, Christy Fletcher. She has the uncanny ability to predict the future, make things happen, and keep every stakeholder happy all at the same time. She truly understands the modern media landscape and has helped me navigate its crazy waters at every turn. At Fletcher & Company, I also want to thank Alyssa Wolf, who has been a tireless advocate and gatekeeper, and Melissa Chinchillo, who is working to bring this book to new regions and languages. I know it is a cliché to say, none of this would have been possible without the constant support of my loving family. But in this case, it is simply the truth. My parents, Vivian Resnick and Andrew Reese, have always supported my love of technology while still insisting on the importance of a liberal arts education. Without their constant love and support, I would never have had the courage to step into the void of entrepreneurship or have found my own voice as a writer. I know my grandparents have been with me every step of this journey, they believe deeply in the power of writing and took supreme joy in my sisters and my every accomplishment. To my sisters. Nicole and Amanda and my brother-in-law Dov, I can only say, thank you for supporting me all these years. My wife, Tara Sophia Moore, has been a constant source of joy and comfort every step of the way. She has experienced every stress, every high, and every low through this very lengthy process. Tara, you are an incredibly brilliant, strong, and compassionate woman. Words cannot express how much I appreciate your steadfast support your overwhelming love, and the daily adventure that is our life together. Thank you. About the author. Eric Rees is an entrepreneur and author of the popular blog Startup Lessons Learned. He co-founded and served as CTO of IMVU, his third startup. He is a frequent speaker at business events, has advised a number of startups, large companies, and venture capital firms on business and product strategy and is an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School. His lean startup methodology has been written about in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Harvard Business Review, The Huffington Post, and many blogs. He lives in San Francisco. That is the end of the book. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you want to expand your knowledge about building a business, click here, or click the link in the description for a playlist containing audiobooks all about entrepreneurship. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you, and I'll see you next time.